0: Home isn't always the place you live most of the year. Sometimes it's the place you get to escape to for just a few months. A world that feels more real than the one you left because it's full of people like you who help you feel free to embrace the void. Was ever gonna make it back from the void, I suppose it was gonna be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time
1: is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. <laughs>
0: language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome friends to episode 243 of Embrace the Void, where it appears that summer has sprung. I'm your host Aaron, and this week we're talking secular summer camp experiences. So Let's get out there and enjoy not God's work. Life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Sarah Miller, executive director of Camp Quest. Sarah, would you like to say hi to the Void?
1: Yes. Hello, Void.
0: Thank you so much for coming on, Sarah. I really appreciate it. I got to chat with you a little bit at the American Atheist Convention. And I've talked about CamQuest a bunch on the show. Previously, we had Neil Polzin on and folks should go back go back and listen to that one. That's episode 140. If folks want to check that out. But I was really excited to have you back on to talk about the coming summer, essentially. So how are you doing?
1: Oh uh, great, great. Also excited about this coming summer. Obviously after two years of a pandemic, it's it's a big deal to be getting back to camp.
0: Yeah, and obviously I have some questions about that. And it's funny because right before we were recording, we were talking about we we're basically talking about talking about the pandemic and camp stuff, right? Like I, for folks who don't aren't familiar, also grew up at a summer camp, work at a summer camp. am getting to go back to that summer camp finally this summer as well. So I'm also in like a very similar place to you on those sorts of things. And there is this kind of like vibe of... You know, how do we talk about what we're doing with regards to that stuff in a way that's sort of supportive versus, you know, off-putting or something like that? So I have questions about that, of course, but I imagine y'all are spending a lot of time thinking about those kind of balancing issues as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and especially with young people, it's important to always sort of be positive and present, pop, you know, problems as real things, but also things that can be dealt with.
0: Mm, yeah. So before we dive into some of those things that hopefully can be dealt with, um, do you want to let folks know, like, a little bit, just a reminder about what Camp Quest is, if they don't have a chance to go back and listen to the previous episode, and like a bit about how you personally got involved with this program?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with Camp Quest. Uh, it was actually founded in 1996. So it's 26 years mm-hmm. now. And something that's exciting <laughs> for us is so far, That math got to be
0: wrong. Yeah, go ahead.
1: <laughs> It's not. And this year, for the first time, one of the first campers is sending uh, one of her children to camp. So we're, we're officially on the second generation now.
0: That's so great.
1: It is. It is super awesome. And it was the first one was started in northern Kentucky near Cincinnati and migrated to Ohio a few years later. So that was our only location for a few years. And then some of the former counselors from that location went off and started setting up their own Camp Quest as independent affiliates. So in the early 2000s, the decision was made to make an overarching national association that would do licensing. Mm -hmm. And that is the entity that I am the director of. So Camp Quest Mm -hmm. grew and grew. So California, Minnesota, Texas, Virginia, everywhere in between. Almost all of them are one-week residential camps. Some of them are two weeks, and a couple of them have day camps also. Mm-hmm. I came on board in 2018, and I was originally hired as the development director. I didn't mm-hmm. have any previous experience in uh, in the organized secular movement at all. And mm. Camp Quest has always considered itself to be part of, of the secular movement, and we're actually a member of the Secular Coalition for America, and that that helps us a lot to... Meet like minded folks. I just came on. I I've, uh, was one of those people who was raised as an atheist, and basically, I never thought much about religion. You know, I was fortunate uh-huh. in that way. I know a lot of people in our community came out of religion and have stronger feelings about religion as a subject than, than uh-huh. I do. So I think that gives me a slightly different perspective, and it's also something. That I think is becoming more widespread in the secular movement of people who don't have this experience with religion and kind of aren't really interested in talking about it and are more interested in just creating a community for themselves mm-hmm. anyway i came on board 2018 and in 2020 i became the executive director
0: so what was the background that got you interested in being involved at this level in this specific, this particular capacity Were you coming from organizational background or?
1: I have worked in nonprofits off and on for most of my adult life. My previous experience uh, running a nonprofit was actually with a foundation that did arts exchange with Cuba. Mm. So a completely different subject matter. Hmm. But a lot of the administrative stuff is really the same for any kind of small nonprofit.
0: Different group of atheists to be servicing, I suppose. Different group of atheists, yeah. (laughs) yeah <laughs> it's also interesting that you mentioned the the coming from a non believer background and so not having sort of a feeling a need for this this is something I also share and it was a reason I think that I sort of came to like the secular movement stuff later than I would have otherwise was because it didn 't feel like there was as much of a a need for that in my life initially and i've sort of started to come to think of this as the like I think the statistic was in the uh, American Atheist's recent survey. It was like one in seven or something come from that background. So it's like the one in sevens who are like finding out that like their experience is still very, very different from the people like the six out of seven who came from from that world. So, yeah. Do you want to say a little bit about like how you feel that impacts your approach versus the you know approach you feel like? people might have been expecting or, or in the mindsets of if they're coming from that sort of six out of seven backgrounds?
1: I think there are a couple of things. One thing that I think is positive specifically for working with Camp Quest is that, you know, all of our kids by definition, or I want to say 90% of our kids are from non-religious households. We actually have a handful of religious families that send their kids just because they like the, the kind of general ethos and tolerance. A handful but, of religious um, families
0: that send them. That's that's yeah, great.
1: Yeah, yeah, we have several
0: Episcopalians and, mostly, Unitarian Universalists. Probably, I would
1: yeah, I think yeah. in that in that genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's helpful because those families also maybe in in the early in the late nineties, early two thousands, there was a little bit more of a reaction to not wanting to send your kid to the local church camp. So they were responding a little bit more to messaging about not being religious. And now I think a lot of the families we hear from want a little bit more, more than that, you know, not just a negative negative mm-hmm. to say, well, what are we doing? And so we, mm-hmm. it's forced us to be better about communicating around things like humanist values, critical thinking, um, and also just community and inclusion, because ultimately that's what, that's what you want for your kids, right? You want them to have a, a community where they're happy and they have friends and, and it's a positive social environment for them.
0: Yeah, this is actually a refrain that I've been hearing throughout the like community, and and like partly it's probably because it's the refrain I want to hear because I come to this from a you know values and ethics and moral philosophy perspective, and so I, he- I but I I do feel like I'm hearing a lot of folks who you know came to the movement during like new atheism valued some of the pushback that they saw on history and science kinds of things, but are now wanting a more positive social activism, social justice, almost oriented project um, that is explicitly secular in its, you know, ethos and approach. So it doesn't feel like it's helping people through, you know, Red Cross or something like that. Right. Or um, Salvation Army. Right. I said about, excuse me, not Red Cross. Um, So let me ask you then on that front, like, in the values-centered secular community mindset, how do you feel like you are providing activities or programs that help your campers think about values?
1: There's really two parts to that. And one of them is not so much programs, but the general culture. You know, we have a culture of empathy. There are certain things that we feel very strongly about across the network. And one of them is tolerance and teaching kids to be respectful of others and their various differences. And another one is just some kind of deliberate changes to some of our traditional, the traditional American camp culture. So for instance, no hazing, no pranks, things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, You know, if you want to surprise somebody, you give them a positive, you give them a present or a positive surprise, right? You don't do a a mean prank. And Mm -hmm. so that just, engenders a culture uh, where kids learn a, a respectful and, um, I don't know, empathetic, caring way to interact with others. So part of that is, you know, just modeling good behavior and enforcing standards of good behavior. And mm-hmm. then when we come to explicitly teaching values, we have a few ways to do that. And it's something that we're, we're looking at doing um, in a more structured way. Because, of course, these are also kids who are really, for, so far as they're concerned, they're there to, you know, go canoeing and play in the woods, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. have to make it fun for them.
0: You have to trick them into the, the valuing part. A,
1: a little bit. So some of that comes, um, one of the more obvious ways we do that is often during skit night, you know, we have certain values. Do, do a skit that illustrates the importance of empathy or of working together. Mm-hmm. And one thing that we do that is supposed to help both critical thinking and also respectful interaction is Socrates Cafe. That's very popular. The okay. kids love it, and um, I know you're familiar with it, Erin. But for the listeners, it's it's a situation where you choose a topic. It can work for grown-ups as well. Uh, a group of people chooses a topic, and then they discuss it, and you take turns. You know, there's a facilitator that kind of takes note of who wants to speak and um, they listen to each other out and then they, in their own time, give a respectful answer. And so mm-hmm. really, I mean, I would say this sounds obvious, but I think the past few years has shown that it is not obvious, but it's really so important to sit <laughs> Almost down nothing
0: and- is obvious, yes.
1: <laughs> right. So, you know, it's such an important skill to just listen, let someone finish what they're saying. And then think mm-hmm. of a respectful response. Even if you think it's completely crazy, you can find a way to give a respectful response in almost all circumstances. And so that's a really important skill, I think.
0: Mm, yeah. Are there specific examples in your mind of like quest- fun questions that often come up, or like what kinds of questions or categories or buckets of questions do you feel like you often see popping up in these um, campers' minds?
1: Uh, yeah, and I actually want to point out that we let the kids choose the question. They have to throw out a few questions and then vote. So mm-hmm. um, one popular category across the board tends to be things like, you know, why can grownups do things that kids aren't allowed to do? That's obviously <laughs> often on on kids' minds. And mm-hmm. then it's it's thinking about just daily activities, like why do we play games? Once you get into that, that turns into a really deep discussion. Mm. Or why do people sleep
0: and do you ask them to define game for example
1: yeah and that can take an hour yeah that's that's days right
0: there you could lose your whole week to that
1: (laughs) right right
0: (laughs) just the just the act of trying to define it is itself a game right like just go all the way down the meta rabbit hole on that one um what do y'all talk about when you when you talk about the parent why adults and young people can't do the same things how do those Uh, conversations usually go
1: Well, yeah, that's, I mean, for one thing, you and I have an idea of why. And a lot of it, you know, there's some sort of physical reasons, you know, Mm -hmm. that kids aren't big enough or strong enough. And then it's just experience. It's really what the rest of it boils down to. And then you get into discussions of, you know, a lot of adults still do really stupid things or unhelpful things.
0: Make poor choices, yes. Yes,
1: they make poor choices. And thank you for. Putting a more positive spin on that, but uh, <laughs> bad, yeah, and bad then luck we talk for that. was well, what happens. Yeah. You just ultimately sometimes you just kind of have to draw a line and say, okay, at this point, most people are capable of making good decisions most mm. of the time.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, uh, you know, obviously, I um, not obviously nothing's obviously right, but like I, of course, love conversations about. Like questions of, of responsibility and, you know, like you can have a fun time just talking about why are certain things allowed at 16 versus 18 versus 21? Is that makes sense? Um, you know, what does the cognitive psychology say about frontal cortex development? And does that mean that, like, you're not a person until you're 25 or something? So um, do they... Where do they go with these sorts of questions in terms of their own, like, lives and behavior? Do you sort of, do you all turn it back around to, like, their own activities, their own applied um, experiences?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's always part of it. And, And actually, in the example that you just gave, we can do some things at 16 and some things at 18. You know, the truth is that a lot of those answers are just social. You know, at 16, a lot of kids have, you know, jobs and they need to drive to the jobs, so we let them drive
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the reason in this country why you can vote at 18 is because that's when you're old enough to serve in a war so you should be able to have a say in that so it's this interplay of our our culture and economy um with our with our growth really,
0: do really they complain about out. how you can be sent to war but you can't have a drink yet <laughs> Yeah, that's always well, a fun one
1: that is a fun one. And I'm old enough that I, I remember when that changed. Um, it changed when I was like 17. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I remember it well. It was a big deal at the time. <laughs> Just but, real yeah. bad timing. I understand. Yeah. yeah.
0: I imagine it probably was a few years of transition, though, where you could probably slip through before the enforcement got too strong, right? Yeah. Um, and it was
1: state by state for a couple of years.
0: Right, exactly. Uh, so that was the sort of like, what are the most common kinds of questions? The flip side, I'm curious, because young people are often the best philosophers because they don't ask the questions that normal, like everybody else would ask once you become sort of normalized by society. So like, were there any like particularly out there questions or ones that really got to you that you hadn't expected from young people at various points?
1: Um I think the one that was most surprising to me is uh, why do we sleep? Uh And, you know, of course, a lot of that is biological. But um, so really, a lot of that's kind of a speculation. And that was interesting because, you know, you and I have been through a lot of years of schooling and know a certain amount about evolution and different environments and this and that. But if you haven't been through that, then you come up with some different ideas
0: yeah it's do you thing. do they then go to like the research and like find out that we don't we don't know exactly why and we sort of know but maybe and like kind of and what our dreams who knows right. question mark like
1: yeah
0: because um, then yeah. you get to have like a whole extra conversation about like what is what the hell is science actually doing if we still haven't figured out very basic things about our own physiology in this way
1: yeah and one one of the nice things about Socrates Cafe is that then this conversation can go on all week
0: really Mm -hmm. and do you you find that they they do continue to like bring stuff up over the course of the week
1: yeah absolutely so as we're having this conversation I realize that another good aspect of it is just kind of stoking natural curiosity Mm -hmm. curiosity about the world
0: yeah that kind of just desire to understand and also the kind of humility that I think, I mean, you call it the Socratic cafe, Socrates, one of the values of his approach is that like, you can't start to try to learn things until you acknowledge that you don't know things. And um, it can be hard to acknowledge that you don't know something because people might, you know, make fun of you or something. So helping them feel like it's okay to say, I don't know, is always to me one of the best things you can ever teach somebody.
1: Yeah, yeah, me too.
0: So On top of that, right, another way to do that is trying to create community spaces. Do you all think about or talk about, you know, organizing actively your community spaces? You've talked about like empathy and things, but like what other kinds of values do you feel like you center to try to help them create spaces where they feel comfortable, you know, being vulnerable and flourishing and such things?
1: Um, one thing, and this is something that's particularly important to young people, and I think especially now, is is really being radically um, inclusive of people's ide- identities. Mm-hmm. So one thing that we deal with a lot now and that has increased a lot is um, identity, um, gender identities of different kinds and the fluidity of that. And Mm -hmm. one of the things we really pride ourselves on is that, you know, you come when you're eight and you keep coming until you're 17. And ideally you keep coming as a counselor. And it really Mm -hmm. doesn't matter how your personal identity develops during that time. You're still part of the family and, Mm -hmm. you know, it can change completely. It can go back and forth, whatever it is. So many of our camps pretty much all the camps that can manage it based on their facility have at least some gender neutral cabins or Mm. spaces. And we also are pretty much just let the kids decide which, where they want to be. And sometimes kids change their mind in the middle of the week and that's fine. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's both very good for those particular kids. And it's good for everybody to be part of that and to just Mm -hmm. really have a more A deeper understanding of what community is it's not me telling you oh you have to fulfill one of these x roles and then you can be part of our community it's like you're Mm -hmm. part of our community and we'll just kind of you know figure out what kind of role you want to play in it
0: this is something that i'm really interested and excited about because first of all of course because there's like all of this horrible pushback in terms of creating space for young people to Explore their identities, express their identities, change their identities in various ways, try things out and stuff. And and for me, growing up at uh, the camp that I went to was Bucks Rock. It's up in in Connecticut, and it really was a kind of hippie camp where you know you could you know dress as you wanted, do as you wanted, like um, be you know, be very expressive in a way that like certainly growing up in Virginia, I was not in any way allowed to do any of those sorts of things uh, around a lot of folks down there. So like, but at the same time, while it was that kind of space, it also had a lot of traditional gender binary kind of stuff going on. You had boy, you know, the boys bunks and the girls bunks and they were, you know, you didn't fraternize too much. And it was like they were still doing some of like the old campy kind of, you know stuff and this year post all of the collapse and reset kind of things they're moving more in the like in the direction of having the structure be in keeping with the ethos in that kind of way providing like you said um gender neutral bunks or um alternatives allowing people to self-identify where they uh would, would prefer to bunk um are there other things that you feel like parts of your program where the mix of kind of the reset and changes are like coming forward in terms of like, we can do this differently, or we can do this better, or like, we hadn't even thought that we could change this around a little bit?
1: Uh, That's a good question. And, um, you know, one thing that was interesting about last year. So last year, um, seven of our camps held sessions in person, uh, some day camp and some overnight camp. And we had zero cases of COVID, which we're very excited about, which is Mm -hmm. mostly due to the hard work of everybody who did the research and and, and created new, you know, forms and norms around that. And of course, there's always an element of luck in this situation. You know, we can't, Mm -hmm. you can never eliminate the risk entirely, but we were lucky enough that, you know, we had enough in place to keep it, keep it, um, keep it safe. But in doing that, it, it forced you to rethink really a lot of specific things you were doing. And one of the biggest ones was having to keep kids in pods, especially in day camp. Mm -hmm. And that's a really different way of, of doing things. And there's pros and cons. Obviously Mm -hmm. you don't get to meet as many other kids um, or get to know them as well that way, but you can figure out ways to adjust your activities so they can be done in a smaller group. And in some of those I think will stick and some of those will, will not. Mm -hmm. And it also in some ways helped us just rethink the physical layout of a lot of things we were doing in a way that ultimately I think is good. So you can do a lot more outside, you know, we, Mm-hmm. early 21st century America, we're used to spending most of our time inside and you don't have to, uh, right. if It's, you know, basically an okay temperature and not a hurricane. And so we, we did a lot more of just kind of finding out ways to eat at, figuring out ways to eat outside, gather together outside. I think a lot of that is going to go with us, um, in the future. And that's something, um, that I think also, and this is, this is just me talking now, but you know, in the future we're going to have to be a little bit more cognizant of our energy use and our use of air conditioning and everything else. And so the more we kind of find ways to break ourselves out of our climate controlled environments is, is generally good.
0: Yeah. That raises another uh, fun challenge question that I've, been seeing coming up in the camp kind of world, which is, you know, a lot of these camps are designed and built often, you know, maybe not fully up to code, let's say, to put it gently, right? They were built during a time before serious coding around camp structures, let's say. Um, And they're not, you know, insulated or ventilated or various kinds of things are not there And it was fine because of the way the place they were built in the time. And it was like, it wasn't an issue, but now things may be changing. Are y'all thinking about how your different locations are going to have to deal with like different kinds of kind of climate change problems going forward? Are you going to be like having to upgrade infrastructure to, to deal with temperature variations to a greater degree, stuff like that? Is that on y'all's radar at all?
1: It is. Uh, we don't own our facilities; we rent. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have a dream of of building something, hopefully within the next ten years. And we talk about it a lot in relation to that. And that, I think, is um, goes back to a little bit to just some changes in architecture. You know, and a lot of that. I mean, I think most of us know that. But a lot of that just is higher ceilings and more ventilation, and uh, you know, more pavilions and things like that that offers shade. Mm-hmm. And also some of, some locations, you know, out West are starting to have to worry about smoke. Mm. You know, right. it's um, I know a few years ago, one of our California locations almost had to evacuate and then a fire was contained. Um, I mean, it wasn't close, but it was close enough that if you had a, mm-hmm. was, you would evacuate and close camp. Right. And so that's something on everybody's mind. Um, and I, I certainly don't have an answer for that. But for heat and things like that, I think also just some changing of the timing when you do things. So in the middle of the day, sometimes you do more stuff that's inside under the pavilion. And you just have to get mm-hmm. out of the heat of the sun for a while. And And we're not really used to doing that. But I think that's that's coming.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I get the sense that like we used to do um, eating on the lawn once a week on like a Sunday, like burger day kind of thing. And I think it's probably going to flip. And now that's going to be the norm when it's not raining kind of stuff like that, which I think is great. I think it's good that we're we're moving in that kind of direction, um, though it is also I, I imagine not just smoke, but you probably also have at some point have to worry about kind of water situations in some of those areas as well, if the kind of the drought side of things gets severe enough. Do y'all, and y'all talk about that, I assume with your campers, that seems like it's a, would be a fruitful topic for, for discussing those implications in that environment.
1: Yeah. And it's something, um, as with gender issues, um, it's something that the campers themselves want to talk about a lot. You know, young people are really concerned about climate change. They're really frightened of it. And it's something that uh, they will want to talk about and, you know, just hear some some adults taking them seriously about. That's certainly something that's on people's minds.
0: Mm. Do you all think about, like, how to turn that into something, like, actionable for them so that it doesn't sort of slide into just kind of nihilism or despair do you have particular things that you feel like get them feeling like they can be you know contributing to the solution rather than the problem
1: yeah there's certainly um activities that some of the camps do sort of uh games around recycling um and stuff like that Yeah. I I would like to do more. It's, that's kind of a big topic. And especially most of our camps are only a week long. There's, there's a limit to what you can do, but I do think um, modeling, you know, coping behaviors is, is probably the best thing that we can do for them.
0: Mm. Speaking of the like lengths, do y'all, I assume the like the pressures of the current situation would be leaning you towards not, but I wonder, are you, you mentioned a kind of permanent establishment at some point. Does that come with a desire for like longer than a week? Or like, Are you trying to have month-long um, or t- two-month-long stays essentially at some point?
1: Yeah, we'd certainly like to have at least one, if not two, facilities in the country that offer that. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think you're aware there's, there's a big regional difference in attitude towards camp people in the northeast are much more likely to send their kids out for weeks at a time and the rest of the country they they get nervous if it, their kids are away than more than 2 weeks um, so you kind of have to you kind of have to meet you know the the culture where it is but i do definitely um, i and, and other people in the network would definitely like to have the option for a couple of full summer camps
0: yeah, I've heard that actually about the East-West cultural summer camp divide. I'm on obviously the East Coast side of things. So I was at camp for two months and that seemed perfectly normal uh, to me. But I have heard that like that's not really a thing, I guess. I'm not, I'm not, do you have any idea about why, first of all?
1: I, I really don't know, um, but it's, it's very striking to me. And a lot of people I've spoken to and not even in my role with this job just kind of can't get their head around why anyone would send their child away for a whole Hmm. summer. It just seems like, you know, borderline child abuse or something. And then of course there's a lot of difference in, in ethnic groups, uh, Mm -hmm. Latino families in particular really don't like to send their kids away to sleep away anywhere. Interesting. It's not something they do.
0: I wonder if my experience is largely, centered around, like, New York Jewish communities who tended to be, like, the major, you know, people who were going to the camp that I was going to, and that, like, maybe there's something about, you know, like, families in cities, you know, it makes sense to get your kid out of the city all summer because the summers are terrible in the city or something, and maybe that's yeah. the difference. But do you know if it's true of, like, the northern or, like, the southern parts of the East Coast as well, or is it more, like, the Northeast in particular?
1: It's really the Northeast and... Mm-hmm. Um, kind of both like i think of it as the new york area jewish culture is part of it but then also the kind of old school uh waspy northeast families do mm-hmm. the same thing
0: they send their kids away for the
1: whole summer so i don't know maybe it's it's really just a regional culture
0: yeah what do you see down in do y'all, do y'all have a place down in like south like proper s- deep south and like what's the situation down there
1: um, Uh, not right now we did have a few camps in the southeast and they actually split off to form camp 42 a few years ago Mm -hmm. but they also run one week camps and and that seems to be the the norm down there but they're in South Carolina and Florida I want to say
0: very interesting do you have a sense um, whether those sort of cultural divides may kind of shift some post-COVID like do you have the sense that parents are a little more keen to get their kids out of the house after having them, you know, stuck in the house for several years?
1: Well, actually, one thing that's happening is the reverse. And several people have told me that their kids are just too anxious to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, they I mean, I think it's anxiety. I think it's being home a lot has kind of eroded their competence and social skills, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's definitely part of it. And another thing that is seems to have changed is that with more parents doing working from home and flexible schedules, there's mm. less of a need for campus childcare. Mm-hmm. So that's that's something that's happened. Um, on the other hand, most people who work with kids think it's even more important now for kids to go off to camp just for social, socialization reasons.
0: Mm. So there's more of a need for it, but less of a demand. And- exactly. Yeah, so you got to kind of convince people that there's that's worth doing still. Right? Are there other ways in which, because you mentioned that you had sort of camps spread out somewhat, ways in which like cultural and you know like um, geographical differences impact how you kind of tailor the curriculums or you know your approaches?
1: Um, certainly. And actually one of the most obvious ways is sex education. A lot of our camps, especially Mm -hmm. say in Tennessee or Iowa or places like that, um, where sex, or let me put it a different way, where, um, fact-based sex education is not really Uh taught in schools. Uh, then a lot of the parents actually have a demand for us to do a little bit of sex education. I mean, that we end up doing mm-hmm. like an hour. Usually there's two sessions for the under and over thirteens. And um, I know in some cases the, the children are told by their parents that they have to go. You know, the parents mm-hmm. are given an option of, of excusing their kids, but almost nobody ever takes it. I'm, I'm actually not aware of anyone ever taking that option. And I know, you know, parents are concerned about their kids not getting accurate information. And so it's really important to them that the kids go.
0: I'm very, I'm curious to hear more about your sex ed curriculum. It reminds me, you know, I grew up in Virginia where it was again, you know, the, the DARE program approach to abstinence only education for the most part, right. A little bit about how babies are born or something, Uh, but like not pro-healthy, you know, sexual discussion. So I got my sex ed at the Unitarian Universalist Church. I always like to point out that it was the, it was the sex ed class that my own parents taught every year except the year that I took it because that would have been very weird. <laughs> uh, but I'm curious, are y'all doing like sex positivity in those courses? Are you mostly talking about safe sex? How are you sort of, how are you framing that? And like, how are your par- how are the parents kind of, what are they asking for on that front?
1: um definitely generally sex positive and also information on on sexual and gender identity you know maybe using like the Mm -hmm. gender man i don't know if you're familiar with the gender man but it's a way of of talking about the different. i've probably seen
0: somebody attacking it on twitter so yes
1: (laughs) it's a way of talking about you know biological sex and identity and orientation and Mm -hmm. um you know the truth is there's only we only have like an hour to dedicate to this, so it's it's basically biological facts, and then we try to have a little bit either as part of this or as a second kind of activity, just some kind of information on consent, you know mm-hmm. and, and that's helpful. Uh, and that's also when it's taught to younger kids, it's more oriented towards dealing with bullies. Mm. You know, like, no, you can't play with my toy again. It's my toy, mm-hmm. and then just kind of adjusting that that basic idea to to being a teenager. Mm-hmm. And say no, I'm not comfortable with this, and I don't want to do
0: this. Yeah, in that same domain, do y'all talk with them about things like body bodily autonomy? Like, what are your do you talk about asking permission before, like hugging somebody or something? How do y'all think about those things?
1: Yeah, we definitely do, and um, that's also really an important part of, of just keeping children safe in Mm -hmm. this kind of a context of, of letting them be aware of their boundaries and able to communicate those boundaries and have those boundaries be respected. So I Mm -hmm. think that it's important for people in general, but I think it's especially important for any kind of youth development, um, situation Mm -hmm. or environment that, that that's very clearly communicated and respected.
0: So some of, I mean, what we're talking about here and other things that I would imagine y'all are teaching are going to be sort of potentially controversial to some folks. And you mentioned that y'all are renting your space. I'm curious, are you renting it, A, from the state or from other private orgs? And like, do you all have concerns about government overreach or intervention in your programs? You know, if they, if somebody decides to accuse y'all of being a bunch of groomers, for example?
1: Um, well, you know, all of our locations are, you know, our locations are across the country and it's every kind of, every kind of landlord you can imagine. (laughs) And, uh, in general, we don't have that kind of concern. I mean, I think we're, we're pretty clear about our, our policies and what we're doing. And, um, in general, nobody, nobody has had those concerns or had those problems.
0: Mm, so y'all don't worry about like the CRT queer theory moral panic stuff coming to your your door at some point.
1: Yeah, I don't. I honestly just don't think we're we're going to be a target for that, just because mm-hmm. we're we're so clearly who we are that it, you know it'd be like you know <laughs> I don't know it'd be like accusing a uh, a gay pride parade of being gay friendly. It's like yeah, mm-hmm. you know, that's, okay, that's what we do.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. So we talked about sex ed. We've talked about um, sort of values and things. Are there like other major needs that you feel like you're hearing from young non-believers that, you know, we as a secular community, not just Camp Quest, should be more cognizant about trying to meet?
1: Um, Well, absolutely. There's a need for community. And uh, that's most obvious with young people, but I honestly think it's for all all stages of life, and I do feel very strongly that that's that's an area where the secular movement thus far has has failed to has has failed to address the needs of its members. And you know, the reason that most people are part of religious communities are for the community. You know, most most people do not really think a whole lot about theology or or if these stories that they're listening to make. You know, logical sense, they're there because it's someplace they can go and they can talk to people. And there's stuff, you know, really cradle to grave. And I think that's been a failure of the of the secular community and a little bit of the left in this country, just this failure mm-hmm. to account for people's social needs and to try to mm-hmm. find a good way to meet them.
0: Do you have any sense of why? That's uh, something that I, I've heard from other people as well. I'm just curious if you have a any um, intuitions about what the, where, the, where the breakdown is there?
1: I think there's a couple of things. I think that in general, uh, secular people are, are cats who are difficult <laughs> to herd. I mean, I think in general, it's independent thinkers, and that's always going to be a little bit harder to kind of pull together in a cohesive community than, than people who um, have a strong feeling that you should be part of a group and demonstrate your loyalty to that group. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I just think that's a temperamental divide. And then I think another thing is just a byproduct of the overwhelming presence of religious communities in, in the communal life of this country and the countries you all, you know, came from. Mm-hmm. So I have had people say to me, you know, about organizations like Sunday Assembly or Oasis. And they're like, oh, well, isn't that just like church? I don't want to be like church. And it's like, well, yeah. it's people getting together. I mean, if you as they also do in a church so, I mean, so I think somehow for people who grew up in that kind of religious community, it it feels like religion to them.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you bring up Oasis and Sunday Assembly. They were both the two groups that I was thinking of that I got to chat with at American Atheist as well. And they are taking that more sort of community oriented approach. And, yeah, I have I've heard, you know, some people complain like. It's, it's just trying to kind of ape religion without actually, you know, committing or something like that. Um, but, like, I was talking about this with um, my partner who also edits the show. And, like, you know, she highlighted it. And I think correctly highlights that, like, one of the major issues is, you know, secular folks, uh, especially if they're coming from enthusiasm-style religious backgrounds, I think pull very heavily towards the, like, get into your mind and out of your feels kind of thing. Like their fields have been used against them for so long. And now they see that like reason can be a way to like put boundaries up between them and that stuff. Um, and then they, and in turn I think they get nervous about appeals to emotion about, you know, community emotive activities about the kind of broad smells and bells kind of part of religion. Um, and I, I worry that it does mean that we end up with a kind of very sterile feeling community that, like, you know, it's sort of a Spockish kind of vibe almost. And that, like, there are lots of people, I think, who would be more willing to be part of our community if they felt like their, you know, spiritual side or their, um, you know, feels side could be more validated, I think.
1: Uh, That's a really interesting point. I never thought about that before but that's probably that's probably a lot of what's going on yeah that's a good observation but yeah i agree and um you know not just in the secular community but amongst young people in general there's just been a tremendous spike in mental health problems and that 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 was happening before the pandemic and the pandemic just threw gas on that fire and Mm -hmm. it's it's tough it's very tough people need positive community and, and a positive way to think about their life, you know, how to, how to live a constructive life in, in the kind of mm-hmm. chaos we find ourselves in. And mm-hmm. so it's most obvious with young people, but I think it's also the case with, with adults and the elderly.
0: Yeah. In the same vein, um, one of the other things that's been getting attacked recently besides CRT is, uh, social emotional learning, uh, which is being, you know, treated as, um, emotional brainwashing or something like that. I don't know. It's ridiculous, but it, it comes to mind because I wonder, you know, despite being a very pro science community in principle, I do wonder sometimes if we have blind spots in our community around certain things like social sciences, because we've, you know, leaned towards the hard sciences because, you know, we're, um, you know, we lean towards this very kind of individualist, rational agent mindset. I wonder if it would be more valuable for us to be talking more about things like social, emotional learning and the way that humans don't really learn in isolation. They learn through community activities and they learn better when they are sort of engaged in what they feel like is a shared community of of values when they're doing that work. Do y'all Do y'all talk about stuff like social emotional learning? Is that made it into your sort of radar or how do you, how do you think about including those elements?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of a very broad term for really any sort of uh, teaching kids how to handle their emotions and interact with others. And that's a lot of Mm -hmm. what we do. And it's funny you bring that up because we're, um, we're trying to change our parent survey a little bit to reflect some of the standard language around social emotional learning basically so that we can make a better case for funding um, Mm -hmm. the foundations that fund that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, um, we absolutely work on that. And yeah, I do think it's a problem somehow not much less so now than let's say 20 years ago in the secular movement of people, sort of hiding behind what they called rationality and then, you know, not really examining mm-hmm. their own behavior. And, and I, I, I do kind of feel that played into a lot of the, the me too situations that blew up um, in the 2010s mm-hmm. in the secular movement.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I wonder, I do kind of almost think the like social justice stuff is what kind of cracked the egg, right? For us, for the rationalists in the atheist community that like, first you have to start taking privilege seriously, but that sort of opens the door to thinking about other kinds of biases, right? And you start to think about sort of the, the limits of our own cognition more or something. So, and that leads, I think, to maybe hopefully getting more in touch with the emotional stuff some. So let me ask, uh, we're getting a little short on time here. Are there, is there anything that's like on your radar for this summer that would surprise folks who wouldn't be, who aren't in your position, that it would never occur to them that that's like a major point of concern or, you know, something you're really paying attention to?
1: Um, I think the thing I mentioned earlier that um, a lot of young people sort of have a lot of high anxiety and and don't want to go to camp, who would have Mm -hmm. gone to camp in the, in the in past years or who are of an age where by now they would have been doing sleepaways and weekends away and they haven't done that. And and they're just, they're just not there. You know, they're just Mm -hmm. not ready to go to camp. And I suspect that's just one facet of what some of these very young people have been dealing with and are going through right now.
0: Are there specific things that y'all are planning to do to like, Address that are there are there sort of approaches that you're taking to help people feel like they're back you know in a safe place
1: um well there's some things that we've just decided to do that probably aren't going to bear fruit for this summer season because it's in like five weeks but sure. one thing we are working on is educating families more about what the camp experience is like so that's for families who mm. maybe the parents didn't go to camp and then the past few years have have kind of messed things up a little bit. So we're working on that and we're also working on kind of a more robust communication about all of our different safety practices. Mm-hmm. You know, we certainly had to do a lot of that last year during COVID, but we're expanding that to explain, you know, everything from the training that counselors get in, you know, dealing with anaphylaxis to, you know, the, the things that we do to prevent abuse. So mm-hmm. we're, we're planning to do, more coherent communications about that in the future.
0: Okay. So we've talked mostly a lot about like potential concerns or challenges. And I think this is true of a lot of folks who are headed into this kind of space that there's a lot of like, what am I not remembering? What am I not planning for? That kind of thing. So I really wanted to ask, what are you optimistic about? Like, what are you feeling most excited about this summer?
1: Uh, I think I'm just optimistic that, that we're doing as well as we are. I mean, almost all of our camps survived COVID, uh, which mm-hmm. is no small feat. You know, most of them are volunteer run. It's a lot going on. It's stressful to maintain that. And, uh, you know, almost all of them will be happening and a couple are just in the hiatus. And uh, that's, that's probably the most heartening thing for me right now is, is seeing how well everybody's held on and, and kind of kept faith that eventually things would be manageable again.
0: Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. Um have you all so you you've retained your camps. Have you for the most part been able to retain the same staff? Has there been sort of I assume some attrition on that front?
1: Uh yeah, a lot of the same staff. We have extremely extremely committed staff. Um a lot of our former counselors come back as staff. So and they're they're raring to go. <laughs> the mm-hmm. Staff are, are really looking forward to coming back.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. it's exciting. And I'm sure it's also, you know, for me, it's a, just the hope of like getting to remember what it's like to be around other human beings in a in-person, comfortable setting. And yeah, it's just it's so I'm sure there's going to be a lot of weird remembering how to like almost like what I experienced at the, at the convention, which was like, oh, right, this is how we talk in person. And this is how we interact as human beings and meet space. Um, so I imagine there's going to be a lot of getting back to that.
1: Right, right. I think I think we've all been dealing with shades of that over these past few months.
0: Yeah. So I always like to wrap up with a question before I get to unfortunately having to torture you. <laughs> Are, and this one's a little bit tricky in this context, but maybe you can point us in some directions. Are there like Resources that you would recommend for folks who are interested in learning more about, you know, we could say secular camps or Camp Quest in particular or alternative educational environments like this more broadly. Things that you feel like have helped you, you know, shape your own thinking around these issues.
1: Well, um, there's our website, campquest.org. And for alternative education, this is not exactly... This doesn't exactly fall under that category, but to teach young people about humanism in English, the best resources I know of are on the Humanism UK website. Mm, and I mm-hmm. want to say it's understandinghumanism.com. but you can certainly find it by googling and it has has a lot of great stuff. It actually has lesson plans because they do teach in the schools over there. Uh, hmm. The comedian Stephen nice. Fry has um, a lot of nice little videos. They kind Mm -hmm. of talk about humanism that are very accessible.
0: Awesome. Look at that. Awesome. Great. Well, I really appreciate you um, sharing all these things, Sarah. And now, unfortunately, that means it's time (laughs) for the torture. So this Um, is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only options. You don't get to hedge. You don't get to define what you mean by real. It's just real or not real. Okay. All right. I got you it. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. So first of all, is anything real? No. Not real. Nothing's real?
1: <laughs> I'm just going to start with that because I feel it put, like it puts me in a strong position for everything else.
0: Okay. Well, I got to go <laughs> through the list anyway. So let's see if it's I really the case. I to contradict myself shortly. That's okay. Most people do. Yeah. Okay. The external world, real or not real? Real. (laughs) All right, we're off to a good start here. Uh, Colors, real or not real? Not real. Okay. Phenomenal consciousness, which is the uh, experiences inside of your head.
1: Not real. I have to be consistent with colors.
0: Okay. Free will? Real. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Real. Real. Races. Not real. Species. Real. Morality. Real. Rights. Not real. Knowledge. Real. God or gods. Not real. Society. Real. Money. Real. Numbers.
1: Ooh, I, I actually don't know about that i'm gonna say real
0: okay fictional characters not real holes like a hole in the ground real chairs real sandwiches real science real natural laws not real beauty not real love real causality real and finally time real okay i also want to go on
1: the record that i think birds are real
0: you think birds are real yeah not not a but like like real real not like a real plot by the government but like yeah, you know real right. surveillance fake birds okay that's right fair enough that's uh, good It's good. We'll, we'll note that down as an addendum <laughs> yeah i appreciate that uh how do you feel
1: uh good good yeah yeah <laughs>
0: Not too bad. Yeah, I,
1: I, I, I need to think through some of my my categorization there, but yeah, I feel fine.
0: That's all right. We, we can talk about it a little bit more in the <laughs> VIP section, but uh, for normies, do you want to let them know one more time you mentioned your website? But any other places where they can find you on Twitter or uh, any other resources to to jump link them to there?
1: Um, really, I'd like them to just check out CampQuest.org, and then if you're interested in Humanism, especially as it relates to education and and children, I would definitely check out the Humanism
0: UK website. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. that has been a lot of fun. Thanks. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. As always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Chad T, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jay Aldenwalt, Jesse Benowitz and Brenda Goodman, Lawrence Shielding, Serious Inquiries Only, That Bastard Neil Polzin. This name is for display purposes only. Please contact a service representative for more information. And thanks to all the Archduke-level patrons, Creepy Little Void Eyes, Big Easy Blasphemy, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons's filmed live musicals podcast leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app you can also follow me on twitter at etvpod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com and if you notice a small void growing within you consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void just four dollars a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus vip content most of all no matter how you spend your summer you are the void and the void is you.